still tis our ancient foe. Found in line number one, hymn entitled, Our Mighty, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And that hymn was written by Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer. And there's a world of Christians tonight who do not know who our ancient foe is. Now, I must confess, I had brought with me some notes of what I thought was a well-prepared lesson, which I have been preparing and working on for a very long time. However, when we sang that hymn, I changed my lesson. So tonight, we're on the fly, but we're turning to Psalm number 46, where Martin Luther, inspired of the living God, selected verse number 7 as the foundation for this hymn. A mighty fortress is our God, and we still face that ancient foe. Amen. He's never changed. He's still around. Matter of fact, he's grown in stature and power. So let's join our voices together in this great psalm, 46. It is the hymn that I pray that you'll always remember inspired, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. So let's join together in the reading of this hymn. Together. Now, we're not going to rush through the words, but we'll say them in unison. Please, join me. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake, with the swelling thereof. Selah. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her. And that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Come, behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaketh the bow. He cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the carried in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah, verse 7 is repeated in verse 11. Let's pray again. Our Father and our God, with grateful hearts, we thank you for these beautiful inspired words found in Psalm 46. 
reminding us that a mighty fortress is our God and that nothing can prevail against the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For the Lord Jehovah Elohim of Israel is the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge, Selah. Father in heaven, we pray now that you'll be our refuge in the days to come. Father in heaven, as we prepare to cross the Red Sea for the second time, guide us safely through that Red Sea. Oh Lord our God, the waves look very foreboding. The water looks very deep, but you are the victor. You will guide your church. You will guide your remnant through the waters, just as you did in previous days, O Lord my God. Be the mighty fortress of your people, Father in heaven. Our hope is in thee. We place it not in political, social, money, wealth, anything but you. Father in heaven, we are your covenant people, and it is you. And you alone, O oh my Father and my God that we know, will guide us through this terrible, terrible time of history that we know or feel may be coming upon us. And this we pray in the mighty name, in the glorious name, in the wonderful name, in the name that is above every name, the name that every knee and every tongue will confess one day that Jesus Christ is Lord. God in heaven, help us, we plead in Jesus' name. And for his sake I pray, amen. amen. <clears throat> when Jesus walked the earth, he said some very strong things. And many of the words that Jesus said are too strong for preachers today. They just simply kind of shy away from them. In Revelation 2.9 and 3.9, Jesus is writing the revelation letter that will be delivered to, by an angel to his servant John, who is, had been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And uh, when John received that revelation from Jesus Christ, which you can read and confirm in Revelation chapter number 1, in his letter to the Ephesians and later to another church, Jesus warned of many things. But he made one specific warning that is of our concern tonight. He said in Revelation 2, 9 and 3, 9, I know them that say they are Jews, meaning Judeans of the tribe of Judah, but are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. Now he used the word synagogue in the sense that all the Israelites, the Hebraic Israelites of that generation met in the synagogues. That was their local place of assembly. So it didn't have the connotation that we place on it today necessarily as much then as it does now. But I would like to have you just ask the simple question, who is the synagogue of Satan? It's repeated in Revelation 3, 9. I know the blasphemy of them would say they are Jews, Judeans, 
or the claim to be Israelites of the tribe of Judah, and they're not. Jesus said they're the synagogue of Satan. Now, that's pretty strong language, folks. I mean, it's pretty strong. I have yet to hear very many preachers ever quote those two verses. Now, there's another statement that Jesus made in John 8, 44, that I don't hear very often from the church pulpits today. I think Martin Luther found that verse interesting. And I think we would be doing the, the ones that have preceded us in time and history a disfavor if we were so a cowardly and afraid in our generation to look at the same truth that our forebears looked at and we're not ashamed to read and talk about. So we're, we're in a church tonight that we're going to talk freely, openly, openly, and we will be asking you to turn to John 8, 44. Words of Jesus. Jesus was looking some people in the eye one day, and he said, you are your father the devil. Pretty strong language. You of your father the devil and the lust of your father ye will do eaves of murder from the beginning. Whoa! Somebody, that's pretty strong language. Jesus calling some people murderers. You were a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. Because there is no truth in him when he speaketh a lie, speaketh of his own. For he is the liar and the father of it. Now, you are of your father the devil what in the world would that mean i know what typical preachers say about it but i'm more interested in what the bible says about it and so i'll ask you this question the apostle john who is called the apostle of love and he's the favorite gospel for many christians as a matter of fact i love the gospel of john but I can say that about the entire Bible from Genesis 1-1 to the last verse in Revelation 22. But the Gospel of John is special. Because John was not only the apostle of love, but he exposed those who were the apostles of hate. <laughs> and we only know the love side of John. But in 1 John 3, 11 and 12, he made another statement. You might want to turn there. 1 John 3, 11 and 12. You turn the epistle of John the Apostle. Again, every, almost all the words of the New Testament are from the Apostles. Almost every word in the New Testament is from the Apostles after the Gospels. Excepting for the book of, of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. And Luke was about as close to the Apostles as anybody could ever be. Because he traveled with St. Paul, may have even been his medical helper or assistant. In 1 John 3, 11 and 12, take a look at that. It says here in verse 11, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning. Well, what was the lesson you heard from the beginning, folks? That we should love one another, not as Cain. Whoops. Now, now the Bible is going to name some names. Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one. 
Now what in the world does that mean? He's of that wicked one. If somebody was just doing something bad, would you call them a child of the devil? Would, would you accuse them of, of being from that wicked one? Not as Cain who was of that wicked one and slew his brother. Now, John is dating something. He's going way, way back in time to show us that Cain, who was of that wicked one, now, how could Cain be so wicked as to kill his brother Abel and rob his parents of not only Abel, but Cain himself is going to be cast out and become a vagabond with a curse on his head. In, in the world, there's going to be people in the earth that are going to look for him and kill him. So can you imagine the, the sorrow of our first parents? Adam and Eve suffered a lot. When, they, when we see them in the kingdom, we will know that there's no, couple, no married couple on the face of the earth that ever lived through the pain of seeing a perfect world disappear and enter into a fallen world. I, I don't think we would understand how, what that's like. But that's another story. Let's move on. And let me ask you a question, folks. When we come to the New Testament Scripture, we know that the apostles warned us of an enemy. Over and over and over again, they warned us of enemies, and there's a lot of verses that could be quoted. But let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. That's the seed plot of the Bible. If you get it right in Genesis, you have a good shot at getting it right the rest of the way. If you mess up in Genesis, you're likely to get confused in the other parts of the Bible. Amen. Now, I'm not trying to tell anyone in this congregation what to believe. You have, a freedom, you have the freedom to believe anything you want to believe. I'm not here to coerce or to compel anyone to, to believe something that, that you don't believe or that you don't want to believe or for whatever reason you may not agree with me, and that's okay. That's okay, but I know that there's a reason why that we need to know and identify our ancient foe. Amen. Who is this ancient foe? And only, only God himself knows the kind of pain that that foe has levied on the world. As a matter of fact, this afternoon, when an MD, a medical doctor, stood right here at this pulpit and indicated that the Plandemic COVID-19 pandemic that was so 
placed upon the world was one of the, it probably was, in his opinion, the single greatest serial kind of killing ever committed in human history. You and I have been recipients of the greatest slaughter, the killing, the death of people in the whole wide world. The millions and millions of people have been killed from the injection. And here's a medical doctor, an MD, standing here today and saying that COVID was among the coronaviruses that precipitate colds and influenza of various kinds. And yes, COVID can be very serious. And it can be lethal to people with comorbidities and compromised health. No problem with believing that. But he said if the, the, whole, the whole lockdown was a, was, it, it's essentially a scheme. It, it, was, it was perpetrated upon us. Now people, maybe we, maybe God is up in heaven. God knows all things. And I don't know anything. It might be that God has just got us in the woodshed and he's whipping us good. But I know that God did not create the virus. The virus is man-made. It's a, a bio-laboratorial kind of virus, pathogen that was turned loose. But that's not our subject tonight. What is our concern as we turn to the beginning of this whole problem is to remind this congregation, while you have one finger at the beginning of the book of Genesis, keep your little finger there and just make room for a another verse from the New Testament. In the New Testament, Jesus spent a lot of time talking to the sheep people. Because they were the people he came to redeem. In John 10, beginning at verse number 7. John 10, 7. Jesus is looking at some sheep people. And he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you again, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not, but for to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Jesus gave his life for sheep people. He did not give them to the goats. He did not die for the goats. Did not die for the dogs. These are all terminologies that I'm pulling out of verses that Jesus used. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Cast not that which is holy to the dogs. 
He said, cast not your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet. Dogs, swine, goats, what an array. Our land is filled with just about every class. And it's filled with lots and lots of innocent sheep people that don't know who they are, where they came from. They don't know up from down. And that's why many of these people lined up for the injection. And that's why many of them are buried now. All vaccines had a lot number. This was a carefully calculated plan. Some of the shots were placebos. There are many things that you and I don't know. And it's probably good that we don't. Because we become so doggone dangry that we close our Bibles and pick up our swords. God help us to be calm, cool, and collected. Jesus went on to say in John 10, He's trying to tell the sheep people that they've got wolves in the camp. That's another category. Wolves pretending to be sheep. I know them, that, I know them who say they are Jews, Judeans, from the tribe of Judah, and are not. They are the synagogue of Satan. These are the words of Jesus. Talk to Jesus when you get into his kingdom and ask him, why use such language? I'm not going to ask him. I'm just going to believe what he said. He went on to say in verse 26 of John 10, You believe not. You believe not because you are not of my sheep. That is strong language, yes. You believe not because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. My sheep hear my voice and they know me. They follow me. I am their good shepherd. My sheep know me. They follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Now, if ever there was assurance in Scripture... There it is, from the lips of the one who bought and paid for your salvation. The one who died at Calvary and endured the stripes, the agony, the suffering of a Roman crucifix is the one who said that he died for the sheep. He did not die for the goats and all these other classes. And there's another group that he did not die for, and they're called the serpents. Again, these are words that are used by Jesus. But I better enter that, that class into the record. Because there might be somebody here who's been around a lot of timid preachers, and they might, might not have heard this verse. So I'm going I'm to, at the risk of taking just a moment, I want to read... From the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter number 23. Again, I'm in the words of Jesus. 
Jesus said in Matthew 20, uh, 23, he says, Philip, fill ye up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you generation of vipers. How can you escape the damnation of hell? Now, folks, I'll admit, those are, those are strong words. To be called a race of snakes. To be called serpents. Vipers. How can you possibly escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye kill. Ye shall kill and crucify. Some of them ye sh shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city. That upon you... Now, that, truly, folks, I'm getting ready to read one of the strongest indictments in, 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 in human history. Here it is. That upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of righteous Abel all down to the blood of Zacharias, son of Barachias, whom you slew between the porch and the altar. Now that, that is a horrific indictment. To be accused of the slay, the slaughter of the righteous, all the way beginning with Abel. Now that only takes us to New Testament verses that ought to tell us maybe why Martin Luther wrote a book devoted to exposing the people that he calls still is our ancient foe. And he titled it, The Blank and Their Lies. Now what, what word goes in that blank? The ones that had incorrectly labeled themselves as Israelites calling themselves of the tribe of Judah in the first century, and then building on that, calling themselves Israelites, they became a counterfeit. And the world worships at the, count, at the feet of the counterfeit. And you have evangelical ministers up and down the land worshiping these people. And they're gathering millions and have been gathering millions and millions, billions of dollars over time to cast, to give to these wolves in sheep's clothing. So back in Genesis, we have a problem. We start out very wonderfully in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We have a perfect world. And God looked at the world and he said everything is Good. He looked at everything that he had made and it was very good. Genesis 1.31. So at the end of the first chapter, we've got a perfectly created world. Do we all agree on that? I think there's some parts of this lesson you will agree. You'll agree with me up to the end of chapter number one that God looked at everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Is that what your Bible says? Then you come to chapter number two, and God does some marvelous things. He creates a, a beautiful garden. We call it the Garden of Eden. Into that garden, he placed a man named Adam. And before we end that chapter, 
God tells Adam it's not good for a man to be alone. He gives him a help meet, takes the woman out of the man. From then on, he takes the, the man out of the woman. But he knew that in the beginning, he had to get the woman out of the man to keep things going good here on the earth. Even though all the men come from the women now, just remember the first one came, the first woman came out of man. Am I right on that? Now my Bible tells me that God made the woman out of something from Adam. He took all the feminine nature of Adam and built one of the most marvelous design creatures in the world. And nobody's ever equaled the building of a woman. Nobody's ever understood them, but God has, because he created them. And the guy that says he understands a woman has just not paid enough attention to everything she said. Now, let's look further at the end of Genesis 2. We still are in good order, are we not? How many agree, how many can follow along to this point, that at the end of chapter number 2 in Genesis, everything is still fine? We have a perfect world. We have God instructing the Adam kind people to take dominion of the earth. And they were to be the charge takers. Adam was made Lord of this earth. That's a big job. Now he had a lot of help because there was a lot of people on the earth that were not related to him, but they're going to be good people because he's going to He's going to be exercising dominion over all the other people that are already on the earth before Adam has ever created. After all, who do you think that was out to kill Cain? Somebody was looking for Cain. It wasn't going to be Adam and Eve. They had him right there in their company when, when God put the curse on him. Nonetheless, we know that at the end of chapter number two, everything is still fine. Because at the end of that chapter, we have Adam and Eve joined together in the first institution called marriage. And it's a perfect marriage. There's one man and one woman joined in union, one flesh. So we're only talking about bringing two people of the same genetic package together. Now, in this upside-down world we live in, they tell us now that since the Bible definition of marriage doesn't matter because we don't even believe there is a God, and we have rejected the Word of God, they have rejected all reality. They live in depravity, and they live in delusional thinking, and we live in a world where you... When you follow a false reality, you reject God, you reject the authority of God called the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures, then you have lost reality. You're moving into a world of insanity. So America is, a, is an insane nation. We have someone running this asylum that's worse off than they are. But praise God, there, there are people that have remained faithful because they know there is a God. He is supreme. He created the world, sustains the world, 
governs the world. And one day, by George, he's going to judge the world. If he isn't already. At the end of chapter 2, we're in good shape. We leave Adam and Eve in perfection. They're in such a state of celestial glory, they don't even wear clothes. Figure that one out. They are in a realm that we know, do not understand today. They lived in a world that none of us have ever even imagined. But we will one day. Because paradise is going to be restored. If you've ever read John Milton's Paradise Lost, it's one of the great epics of the English language. And he spent hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages talking about how we lost paradise. And it's an eye-opener. When we come to Genesis 3, however, we have, we have a problem. Now, whatever happened in Genesis 3, and I'm not here to tell you tonight what to believe. Because you, you, the Bible tells us, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So I encourage you to do that. Work out your salvation in fear and trembling. It's important that you do. I've already told you that as sheep people, you have the assurance of knowing that the one who bought and paid for you has said that you will never perish. No one is able to pluck them out of my hand, Jesus said. No, because no one is able to pluck them out of his hand because they can't even pluck them out of his father's hand. He and his father are one. John 10, 30. My, me and my father are one. I and my father are one. The sheep people have eternal life. And that's with... That's great assurance to live in an upside-down world and know that you don't have to be in doubt if you are a convicted believer devoted and dedicated to the, to the person of Jesus Christ and you have pledged your love to Him, you have been baptized, you have, you've confessed your sin, you've been baptized for the remission of those sins, you are one of his children. You're bought and paid for by blood. And what God has bought and paid for, God is not going to lose. Amen. Now another reason you're he's not, not going to lose you is simply because it is because when God bought and paid for you, he guaranteed that you would be in his kingdom. The reason, another reason that you cannot lose your salvation is because you didn't choose Jesus. John 15, 16, you have not chosen me. Look it in your Bible. Look it up. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. If Jesus chose us and Jesus saved us and salvation is a gift, 
It didn't cost us anything, but it cost Jesus a lot. We're bought with a price. The price was his blood. We're washed in that blood. And what God washed, bought and paid for, and what he chose, do you think anyone's going to take it away from him? Don't think so. But if you and I make the choice, if we choose Jesus, we can lose Jesus. Because human minds are fickle. First of all, we don't always make good choices. But if God made the choice, then there's no doubt. God made the choice. According as He had chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God called you and named you before you were ever born out of your mother's womb. God knew who His children were going to be before they were born from the womb. So this is important because the lesson we're in tonight is how the world got turned upside down. Now, you've heard people say, well, we got into the mess we're in because sin entered into the world. And that is true. Sin did enter into the world. Yes. But you know, people, that we have a a world full of, of cemeteries with dead people. We have hospitals filled with sick people. We have people killing each other. And we have mayhem all over this country now. So that makes it very unusual for people to believe that the kingdom is here. Nonetheless, there are some people who, having lost most of the substance between their ears, believe the kingdom's already here. I'll assure you the kingdom's coming, but it's not here. In fact, Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But he said, my kingdom is not from hence. So in Genesis 3, we are introduced to the origin of our problem. Here is where paradise was lost. Now, there will always be great theological questions raised about how sin entered into the world. And Christianity has packaged this up in about a 30-second, at the most, of two- or three-minute package and wrapped a ribbon around it. And they just simply say that two people were in the garden, Adam and Eve, and... uh, The woman found some fruit on a tree that she thought looked good. She gave some to her husband, and we lost paradise. And that ushered in all the world of trouble that we see today. Just somebody reached up there and plucked some fruit from a tree. Took a bite out of it, and it all came crashing down. Now, some people believe the Bible is a fairy tale. That's one. It's created, though it's not in the Bible. It's a created fairy tale that has been made up in theological cemeteries. I mean, seminaries. And uh, 
It's not in Scripture at all, but if you'll turn to Genesis 3, 1. Genesis chapter number 3, verse 1. And the Bible says, in Genesis chapter number 3, verse 1, Now the serpent, didn't we read the word serpent in, in the book of uh, Matthew a while ago? Now we're running into that word again. Now the serpent, singular, was more subtle than any beast of the field, which the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now everybody here knows what God had commanded Adam and Eve to and not to do in the Garden of Eden. They could eat freely of every tree in the garden. Everybody knows that. But there was one tree forbidden to Adam and Eve. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil had boundaries set around it. You dare not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil because Adam and Eve had no knowledge of evil. What is evil? The absence of good. What is good? The absence of evil. Evil has no being. And Adam and Eve had never been introduced to evil because they didn't know anything but good. They were without sin. They were not created as sinners. They became sinners. And so we have now, in Genesis 3... We seem to be doing okay until we have a third party. Now, there's a third party, unless I count, count if, if my counting is incorrect, I need some help. I need to go back to uh, Nancy's group. We have Adam and Eve, and now we have someone else talking in the Garden of Eden. So the first thing we need to get wise to is that I know everyone has seen a snake, a serpent. But have you ever seen one that talked? You haven't? Well, maybe you haven't been to a country where all these cobras and all these vile snakes are. Well, I went through one in South Africa and it, it had every species of snake in South Africa, including the, the, the green mama, mamba, and they, and they were vile and poisonous, and I, but I didn't hear any of them talking. This is a type of metaphor of speech. It's no more a literal snake than it is in the New Testament when Jesus called Herod a fox. Now, Herod was not a literal fox. But he had all the characteristics of a fox. And this serpent in the garden has all the characteristics of a serpent. He's cunning. He's very cunning. How does a snake slip up on its prey? Strike poison into him. All the characteristics are in this serpent. 
Now, the Companion Bible, Appendix Number 19, is an absolute fundamental requirement for anyone that wants to go into Genesis 3 and know what it's all about. Because the Companion Bible, written by Mr. Bullinger, one of the premier theologians of the whole century into which he was born, will give you an Appendix Number 19, one of the great uh, it's probably singularly the best definition of the word serpent you will ever find in literature outside the Bible. So this serpent here is trying to convince a woman. Now we don't know where Adam has disappeared to. He's gone. He may be, I, I'm not going to accuse Adam of going fishing. I'm not going to accuse Adam of anything. I don't know what he was doing. He was commissioned to Dress and keep the garden. That's a big job. Maybe he was trying to plan his schedule. I don't know. But I do know this. That in the absence of her husband, the serpent made his way into the garden. And he begins by planting doubt in the woman's mind. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now remember, God had commanded them not to eat of this tree. Here is this intruder suggesting that God is not the ultimate source of knowledge, would you agree? Yea, hath God said, well, maybe, God, maybe there's another a way to look at this. So this is the beginning of what is called critical thinking. And critical thinking is the foundation for the origins of every ism you can think of in the world. Every ism under heaven and every form of secret society and every evil cabal has its origin in the father of lies, and we're looking at him right here. Now, if we are wise, we will study the Bible. Founded upon the apostles and the prophets with Jesus, Christ being the chief cornerstone, Ephesians 2.20. And St. Paul the Apostle, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 takes us on a quick course through Genesis 3. And he ends up by saying, make no marvel, Satan is transformed into an angel of light. Make no marvel if his apostles also be apostles, parading themselves as apostles of light. American pulpits are filled with the apostles of Satan. There's many good ones, but there's a whole lot that are not good. And the problem we have is, is defined in Matthew 23, 15, when Jesus said, you will compass sea and land to make one proselyte. He's talking to the children that he calls serpents. He said, you will, you will compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him two 
fold more the child of hell than ye yourselves. So a proselyte that comes under the influence of this, of this bad line of people, they become even more evil. And that can be sheep people. Sheep people can be devoured into this, into this evil and become perpetrators of it. Now, do you agree, to, or does that sound strange? Are sheep easily deceived? Are they gullible? I'm talking about real sheep. We got a sheep farmer here. Uh, we have a man from Wichita, Kansas, who is sixth generation on land raising sheep. And sheep, historically, are known as fairly easy to be fleeced, gullible. Sometimes they're called dumb sheep. But then we're not dumb, are we? Why, we, we know that we need an injection of the... Well, yeah, they said the CDC and, the, and, and, and uh, His Royal Highness Dr. Anthony Fossey says why it, it's the best thing since Santa Claus roll up your sleeve the battle we're in church is an age old battle because we're in an age old warfare and the warfare began in the book of Genesis chapter number 3 and there's never been an armistice or a truce or a white flag of peace waved between the perpetrator of lies and the people he's trying to destroy. The ultimate goal of Satan from the beginning was to destroy the Adam kind people and for a very good reason because Adam and Eve will represent at the end of chapter 3 they will represent the line through which the Messiah will come to redeem them and restore paradise to this earth Satan has been coveting the end, the demise, the genocide, if you please, of the sheep people descended from Adam and Eve for ten generations, then from Noah to Abraham for ten generations, and then beginning with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the twelve tribes of Israel, and the millions multiplied from that seed line, the goal of Satan has been to destroy that group of people from the face of the earth in an effort to, first of all, block the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus himself. Secondly, to just wipe out all the seed line through which he came, which are the millions of the descendants of Jacob. And today, in the 21st century, the coveted goal of the billionaire Jewish oligarchs is to eliminate the white people from the planet that we're living on. That is their goal. They are determined to eliminate 
all white people from this earth by whatever means necessary. That is why a mighty fortress must our God be because he has promised that we can stand on the promises of God. The promises of God. They will not fail. Standing on the promises, we cannot fail. Promises built out of covenants, unconditional covenants made to Abraham and others of his lineage. So the serpent enters into the garden to replace the knowledge that God has given to Adam and Eve. All wrong thinking begins right here. Because God and God alone is the author of all truth. You and I and no one else has any authority to ever change what God has said. God created all things from the beginning. God created two genders, male and female, and no other modification in between. And anyone who changes God's original design in His created world patterns, carefully chronicled in the Bible, is a liar propagating delusional thinking and creating false information. That is true disinformation. Any departure from God's Word is true disinformation. Count that as your definition. Anything contrary to the Word of God is misinformation, disinformation, hogwash. So now the woman's going to make a decision. God hath said, asking a question, yea, hath God said. So in verse number 2, we read this, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the tree of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Now there there's, could be a lot said about that verse, but I'll, I'll just summarize the important point as I see here, is that Adam apparently had done a pretty good job because the woman knew what the command was. She knew that they should not be eating of that tree. And so we're going, to, we're, going to, we're going to say kudos to Eve at this point. So far, she has simply restated the emphatic word and reality of God. They cannot eat of the tree. So the serpent comes along and he says, in verse 4, The serpent said unto the woman, now he's, he's entering in some more dialogue here, Ye shall not surely die. Now, God said they would die. 
The serpent is suggesting they wouldn't die. Surely you won't die. If this package of lies can be sold to the woman, then we're going to be introduced to evil for the first time. Because Eve does not know what evil is. She does not know that she is dealing with a monumental question here of being lured into a lie. And this dialogue here is the foundation for all critical thinking from critical race theory, the Frankfurt School, all of that, all of that school, Karl Marx, Frederick Hegel, all of these people, this is the point at which they all begin. They announce in their writings that Satan is the author of their idea. They are the, they are parroting the lie of the serpent. Ye shall not surely die. Now, God, think about it. Is Satan not calling, is the serpent not calling God a liar here? God said they would die. Look back at Genesis 2 and verse 17. In the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now Satan is saying, no, 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 you sh you're not, surely you're not going to die. Who would dare to call God a liar? Folks, the Bible is hard for some people to master. It's not hard to understand. It's hard for them to believe. That the Bible can be so plain and yet so hard because it's contrary to what they've been taught about love. So that would require a real definition of what love is, biblical love. Now Satan also said, for God doth know Surely God knows that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open. So here's a promise. Eve, if you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open. What, a, what an enticing promise here. Your eyes will be open. What a promise. And ye shall be as gods. I hear you. <laughs> ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Now, that verse so precisely and concisely written is really hard to unpack all that it means. But it really means that Eve, if you will eat of this tree, then you will have a consciousness 
of evil. You will now have a consciousness. See, before the fall, Adam and Eve had lived in a state of consciousness that was unlike our state of consciousness today. There is no way under heaven that you can wipe away evil from your mind. Because you know that what is not good, anything the opposite from good is going to lead you into evil. Evil is the absence of good. But Eve had no clue what the absence of evil and good really meant. She was not consciously aware of it. Now Satan's going to promise her that she's going to know the difference between good and evil. And the minute she's going to yield here in a little bit, something terrible is going to befall her. So let's read on in verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Now I know this language is a little bit ambiguous and not all that easy to unravel. That it was pleasant to the eyes. Tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof and did eat. Now somewhere between that comma and the period there where I ended, says she did eat. She found Adam somewhere. He may have been close by, he may have showed up in the meantime. But however that was arranged, the scripture doesn't say, she gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. Now, how many agree that the woman ate first? <laughs> At least half of you. <laughs> well, I think that we could agree that she ate of the fruit and then she gave to her husband. Now, in verse 7, it says, after whatever happened, happened, the eyes of them both were opened. What does that mean? Their eyes were open. Now I'm sure that their eyes were not closed in the sense of the eyelid being closed down. But they did not have a consciousness of evil. Their eyes are now open. And they both, and, and the, uh, the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked before they didn't have any consciousness of nakedness not being fully acceptable because they were clothed in light. They were celestial bodies clothed in light like angels, but they were not angels. They were like the most pristine imaginable idea of being robed in glistening white, blinding white. They had no conception of their nakedness, but now they are stark naked and are ashamed. What a change has come. Oh, all, ha all that happened was Eve took a bite out of an apple and then she carefully gave her husband a bite from the other side. And then the story goes on. 
See, fairy tales are perpetrated from pulpits today. And this is one of them. Now, the reason this one is such a big one is because this fairy tale has misguided people to who the real enemy of the sheep people are. They don't know who their enemy really is. And when you're trying to stay alive, it really ought to be important to everyone to know who your enemy is that's trying to kill you. Without that knowledge, you're very vulnerable to the enemy. Would you agree to that? So the Bible says that it was a tree to make to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof. We're, we're really trying to hurry now because we've run out of time, and I know that. So rest easy. I know we're, we're out of time, but we're moving fast. She gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were open. Now they have a, they're in a state of open consciousness. They know good and evil, and they don't like what they know. And would to God that we could eliminate evil from this earth today. We'd remove death. We'd remove sickness. We would remove pain, sorrow, cemeteries, hospitals, divorces, conflicts, suffering, sickness, every kind. In the eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Verse 8, and they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. Now, as I said earlier, John Milton took hundreds of pages in his epic in the English language. It's considered one of the greatest classics of our race. He took hundreds of pages to describe the entry of Satan into the garden and all that happened thereafter. And I sat in a college class and watched people doze while the professor was telling what I thought was one of the most intriguing stories I'd ever heard in, uh, you know, uttered in a college classroom. It was the story of Genesis 3. But it took hundreds and hundreds of pages in that epic Paradise Lost. And the entire semester was built around that classic. That's all we did every day is read Paradise Lost. Talk about it. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So now they're hiding themselves among the trees. Why are they hiding? They were created to have communion with God. They loved their God. The height of their existence was to be in communion with Him, and now they're hiding from Him. And the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, called unto Adam and said, Where art thou? 
God might be asking that question today to Adam again, to all the Adam people, all the men. And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid. I was afraid. Now fear, now fear possesses them. Shame has overpowered them. Fear and shame. Because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, God said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? These are all real questions that everybody needs to answer. And the man said, The woman, the woman whom thou gavest me, gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. It's that woman. God, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me this fruit and I did eat. Do you know the idea of transferring guilt as blame to someone else about as old as the story we're reading here in the garden? How many souls every day will transfer guilt as belonging to someone else? So the blame that belongs to them, they want to transfer to somebody else. The woman who thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the fruit. Now, here's a good question for everyone. And I know that we're, our time has expired and we're trying to hurry. Help us, dear Father, help us. Adam and Eve have a problem here, folks. Because Adam when he was introduced to the fruit, is still in a terrestrial existence. The woman has lost her celestial glory. She's lost her body of light. Do, or can we agree on that? She's now naked, and here comes her husband, still wearing his apparel of perfection in a world of perfection. I don't know, I don't even know if he can see the woman in her condition. Maybe he could, I don't know. But he, he listened to her voice. And she gave him of the fruit. Now we haven't said what the fruit was because I'm going to let you figure that out. Now I'm sure your preacher back home could tell you. But we do know this, that the man tried to blame it on the woman. And verse 13, the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? Now, kudos to the woman, Eve, because she was honest. She said, and the woman said, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And what does that mean? The word beguiled is a word that you need to have a word study on. It can be more, it can be more than just being deceived. 
It's a pretty deep meaning word. I hear an amen back there. Somebody's looked into it. But I'll give you a clue of, of the woman's innocency in her deception. St. Paul writing about this matter in 1 Timothy chapter number 2 said in verse 14 that Adam was not deceived. So Adam's standing there in his celestial glory was not deceived. He knew that his wife had eaten of that forbidden tree. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Now that simply means that she led in the eating of the tree. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. Has nothing to do with salvation. Because if a woman never had a child, then she'd miss out on salvation. So just eliminate childbearing from that phrase. She shall be safe in childbearing if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. <clears throat> well, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, a correction, said unto the serpent. Now God is going to hold court. This is the first divine court trial in history. God is the judge. He is the jury. Adam and Eve are the ones being brought to trial together with the perpetrator of, of the one who entered the garden. Verse 14, And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the earth field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. There's a lot of, of, of things that can be said about that verse, and I know that it'll cause a lot of discussion, but we've, we're run out of time, so I'm bringing this to conclusion. And God said to the serpent, now God's talking. Folks, you got to understand, this is the creator of heaven and earth speaking here. And I will put enmity. You all know what enmity is. It's hostility. It's hatred. I will put enmity between thee and the woman. That's one layer of animosity. Hatred between the serpent and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed. So this is a second layer of enmity. Not only between the woman and the serpent, between the seed, between the woman's seed and uh, the serpent's seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head. That is the woman's seed that is ultimately destined to crush the head of the serpent. Amen. Now that may not have a lot of relevance for everyone here tonight, but let me give you a, a little idea of what uh, you might run into in your further reading. When you read the protocols of the learned elders of Zion in, in number three protocol, 
They say that the symbol of our race is a serpent. And when the serpent has encircled the earth, then our control and subjugation of the world will have been completed. The head of the World Economic Forum is a, is a current model of what used to be called the old protocols of Zion, 1897, Basel, Switzerland, Theodore Herzl, and their plan for world domination is laid out in the protocols back in 1897, surfaced in 1905 in Russia, and later during the Bolshevik Revolution, it was a, a death penalty to have a copy of the protocols. Obviously, when Martin Luther wrote his book, The Jews and Their Lies, I'm telling you everything that I'm telling you tonight, Martin Luther knew. And that book will be denied by the Lutheran dynasty today. They, they, do, they, they are unwilling to acknowledge that he's the author of that book. They will acknowledge that he wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, still tis our ancient foe, who wants to do us woe. Now, Genesis 3.15 is kind of like this. If you take all 31,102 approximately that many verses in the Bible, count each Bible verse as one piece of a puzzle, dump all 31,000 pieces of the puzzle out on the floor, and you try to put the Bible together without putting Genesis 3 in its perspective, you'll ever be learning and never able to come to the knowledge of what the Bible is trying to tell you. Because at the end of the, at the, end of the Bible, uh, Revelation 12, 17, and the dra dragon, it's a more mature word for the word serpent, the dragon was wroth with the woman. The same woman we're talking about in Genesis 3, the origin of the Israel people, the dragon is wroth with the woman, Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed. The remnant of the woman's seed. Now the woman biologically doesn't have seed, but our Redeemer was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary without human Adam kind seed. All 46 chromosomes that produce the body of Jesus were implanted. We read it earlier today. The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And therefore that holy thing which shall also be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Luke chapter number 1. So... Uh, Genesis 3.15 is profoundly interesting because it is the box top verse for the Bible. That's an opinion of mine. Box top verse. Now, if you try to put a 10,000 piece puzzle together 
and somebody hides the box top, and you don't know what those pieces, you have no clue what they look like when they're all put together. You're going to struggle. You may eventually get it put together. But it's going to take you a long, long time. Agreed? But if you have a box top, there's a picture of the, a completed puzzle on the top of the box. And a lot of people that I know will keep that box top somewhere around where they can look at it once in a while. So they're, they're going to they're follow that. But Genesis 3.15 is your box top verse. It's profoundly important. And you know why I'm seldom invited anywhere to preach. Because they don't want me talking about the box top. And it's not that I go around talking about it. In fact, I haven't preached it from this pulpit for, for several years, matter of fact. I'm very rusty on it. Let's go to verse 16 because we're coming to the end. And the woman said, unto the woman, he said, God speaking, God tells the woman, he says, look, I'm going to greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception in sorrow thou shalt bring. Hello. Yes, Satan, we know that you're trying to interfere. Thou shalt bring forth children and thy desire, thy desire shall be to thy husband and he shall rule over thee. So God put three sanctions on the woman. I didn't put them, you didn't put them, these are God's sanctions. Before the fall, Eve could have bore children without a pain. Adam and Eve could have determined they wanted a child, child be born without pain. Now the woman's going to multiply, she's going to have to multiply conception, because now we live in a fallen world, there's going to be death, there's going to be disease, misfortune, there's going to be all kinds of problems so we're going to have to multiply children. How many see that in an imperfect, flawed world, we're going to have to have great, more, more multiplication of children? Can you see that? And not only multiplication of children will be increased, but sorrow in getting them here. Pain and sorrow. I've never born a child. Do not, I think people that believe a man can... Conceive a child are just literally ready for, uh, they're ready for the, well, a hundred years ago we put them in an asylum. But we let them loose today and teach our children. Now, thou shalt bring forth children. So there was three sanctions now. Multiplication of children, sorrow in childbirth, and the desire would be to have her husband rule over her. Now, there's a lot could be said along that last phrase there, but we've run out of time. Now, all that I've said about the woman just happened because she took a bite out of an apple, you know. Now, I don't know what eating fruit had to do with multiplying children. And I have no clue what it means to have some kind of fruit picked from a tree and, and uh, equals child uh, pain and, and sorrow in childbirth. You know, that's, that's kind of a mystery, isn't it? 
that all have, someone has to eat, take a bite out of an apple and suffer pain in having a child? I don't think that really sounds very logical to me. Unto Adam, he said, verse 15, now comes 17, now comes the man. Unto Adam, he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife. And has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground. The ground had no curse upon it back in Genesis 1 and 2. Now it's got a curse. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Now that's, that phrase, and sorrow thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life, is a very, very loaded statement. Because it not only implies that man is going to have to earn the food from the earth by the sweat of his brow. It's going to, the earth is going to be filled with nettles and brambles and briars and thorns. So all of this masculinity is going to be required to prepare the earth and remove the curse so that they can grow food. But the idea of eating of that tree all the days of his life bears some careful thought. After all, if there's an increase in the multiplication of children, I wonder how those children are going to get into the world unless there's an increased level of testosterone. I'm just asking questions. I don't know how you multiply children without getting a commensurate change in men, where men have some kind of a problem that they need to really learn how to control. Today, a lot of men can't. They get into pornography and all kinds of other terrible problems. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Keep in mind that women do not bear children after menopause, but men can father children if they're in a healthy state a long, long time. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee and thou shalt eat the herb of the field, and so forth and so on. Now this chapter ends with Adam and Eve being expelled from the garden. As you, now I have, I, I'm getting ready to end this lesson. I don't see anyone in the sound booth. So, are we out of, are we out of tape? Oh, well, good. Let's all stand. 